You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. to meet you. I see we got some, some guests and some visitors with us today. I'm Ant, pastor here at Midtown Two Notch. If you're a guest and a visitor, I just want to let you know, very glad that you're here. Appreciate you coming to worship uh, with us. We're, we're very glad to have you. Uh, we've been, uh, we just picked back up in a series on 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to get it started in verse 15 today if you want to go ahead and, uh, and turn there in your Bibles or scroll there in your phones. If you've been with us, you know we've been saying kind of from the beginning of when we started this series on 1 Corinthians that Paul went in as an apostle, preached the good news of Jesus Christ. This new church was born in this, I guess you call this this urban area, very diverse area, diverse socioeconomically, diverse ethnically, diverse religiously as people worship all different types of gods there at this time. So now there's this new church that's in Corinth, but the problem is there's too much Corinth in the church. And the church consistently adopts the views of the world, the views of the culture into the way that they live in a way that is leading them away from living the way that God has called them to live. This continues to take place, as we'll see in this chapter today, in chapter 10, even with the way that they approach communion. Today, Paul will deal with how the the, the worshiping practice of communion is actually different but yet similar to the, the, uh, what he talked about in chapter 8, which was when they were arguing about how they should view the meat that was sacrificed to idols. So Paul's going to point out how that was actually done to worship these false gods. Well, the meal that Christians practice consistently to worship God is communion. So we'll be focusing primarily on that today. Before we get into it, I want to ask a question just to get our minds in the right direction. Have you ever considered the power of meals, the power of of, of families and loved ones coming together around a table to eat together? Have you considered the impact that that can have on a people, that it'll have on a a family, a society even? It It is a unifying and powerful thing to get together around a table with people that you love the most, people that you care about the most. It's unifying. And in cultures all over the world, I think you'd be very hard-pressed to find one culture on the planet that doesn't have some type of consistent practice of coming around a table together and sharing a meal together to enjoy each other, maybe times of celebration, maybe even in times of sadness. It's ingrained into us. We love this. It's deeper than just eating. It's, it's a time of, of bonding, a time of joy. If you're having a celebration, and you don't have food there. I'm just letting you know you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. You ain't doing it the right way. And it's not just special occasions, right? It's not just big things like that, that we celebrate and come together. It's consistently, even as a family, on a day-in, day-out basis, coming together builds a bond and a unity in a group of people. The Bible, you could say, is, is bookended with meals. I would say there's five specific meals in the Bible that you can kind of interpret the story of the Bible through these meals. Meal number one was the meal that Adam and Eve had in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. It's a meal without God. A meal where they were declaring their, their autonomy, their independence from God. God made everything good. He provided for them as, as a good father. 
He made sure they had everything that they needed. He made sure they had even, even beautiful um, trees and vegetation around them. They had everything that they needed, but they decided that they wanted to go their own way and do their own thing and rebel against God. So they had this meal without God. The one thing that God told them not to do, they partook in together. And by doing this, they separated themselves from fellowship with God. And this meal comes right before this this pronouncing of, of the curse of sin that we still experience to this day. Instead of their meals cultivating joy and unity and oneness within them, we see now that there's this fracture in their relationship. We see now problems throughout our world, throughout all of God's creation because of this meal that they had together that was without God in the garden. The second major meal that we see occurring, I would say, is the Passover meal. Later on, God's people find themselves enslaved to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He's oppressing them greatly. He's oppressing them physically and spiritually. They're not even allowed to participate in the different worshiping practices of their God while they're there trapped in Egypt. During the 10th plague, well, before the 10th plague, I should say, God sends these plagues and he ultimately frees his people. But the 10th plague was very important. That God brought judgment after warning and after warning after warning towards Egypt for them oppressing and enslaving his people. God brings judgment to every household in Egypt as the firstborn son in every home in Egypt died. But God spared the firstborn sons of those in Israel if they had the blood of the spotless lamb over their doorposts. It was a a sign of their faith and trust in God to be their savior. See, God had them take a lamb, a spotless lamb, and kill it and put the blood of it over their door. But he also had them eat this, this unleavened bread with bitter herbs. Their sons, their firstborn sons were spared. And not only that, it was what finally broke the will of Pharaoh. And he let God's people go and they were freed. And from that point on, God had them every year celebrate this feast this, this meal where they would all come together and they, they would eat of the, of the lamb or some type of animal and they would have this unleavened bread that they would eat. And every year, it was this reminder that God saved us from oppression in Egypt. God saved us from our slavery. God called this meal the Passover. Obviously, we understand that it was pointing to Jesus because it wasn't just the, the, the Egyptians that felt the grief of, of losing their first son. But later in the New Testament, we know that God experiences the same grief. When his son is killed on the cross of Calvary, this, this, this meal, it, it points us to Christ and what Christ was going to do. The first meal was Adam and Eve eating in unbelief and eating in sin. The second meal of the Passover is eaten by God's people to unite, to come together, to reverently remember their deliverance from Egypt. It was to foreshadow Jesus, the Lamb of God, that John says it comes to take away the sin of the world. The third meal is the Last Supper. This is Jesus' last night with his disciples before he is taken away to be crucified. He told them that he was anxiously awaiting to be able to have this meal with them. And he sits down, and it's in the middle of the Passover. So they got the the bitter herbs there. They likely have some type of animal, probably a lamb that's there with them as well. But here he makes this transition. He is about to die on the cross and usher in a new salvation that's greater than the salvation that they had already experienced, that Israel had already experienced. So he took the bread. He broke it. He gave it to them. He said, this is my body broken for you. He took the cup. He passed it around. He said, this is my blood poured out for you. What is he saying? 
He's saying that previously it was the sacrifice of the lamb that saved you. He's saying, now I am the lamb. So I'm switching up how we're going to do this celebration and what this meal is going to be for the people of God. He's pointing them to the fact that, that this, this lamb was actually really all about me, that this bread that, that you ate was really all about me and about my body being broken, about me dying in your place. See, he was bringing them a more full salvation than the one that the Israelites had already experienced. See, they had already, at the Passover, they were freed from this physical oppressor of Pharaoh. But now with Jesus' death, they're going to be freed from the spiritual oppression of sin. That at the Passover, a nation of God's people were set free. But when Jesus died, he's going to, to reconcile and redeem a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That at the Passover, God's people were freed, but they would be captured and, and oppressed again and again, if you're familiar with their story. But the salvation that Jesus would offer, God's people would experience complete freedom from all suffering forever as they are with him in paradise. Jesus says, remember me when you do this. When he says, do this in remembrance of me, remember that they were remembering the, the, the lamb that was slain back in Exodus. But he's saying, remember me, do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I am about to do, the true lamb of God that is slain and killed for the sins of the world. Which brings us to the fourth meal, which is the, the Lord's Supper. Since the church was started some 2,000 years ago, Christians everywhere have participated in this fourth meal known as the Lord's Supper. Different Christians, different churches, different traditions do it in a variety of ways. But on Sunday, all around the world, in various nations and countries, and on different continents around the world, Christians get together on Sunday and participate in this meal together. Black Christians, white Christians, Hispanic, Asian, Indian, American, European, Australian, African Christians all over the globe get together on Sunday, many of whom in, in, in a variety of ways partake in the Lord's Supper together, sharing this meal with loved ones, one of life's greatest joys. We do it over and over again. Here we do it pretty much every Sunday. But as has been the case in the Corinthian church with seemingly every other topic, the church was allowing the world to dictate to them how they practice this meal, this meal of worship to God. They, they, they weren't approaching it the way that God would have them to do so. And I believe we'll have some lessons that we'll learn from the way, the, the way that Paul corrects the Corinthians that will inform the way we should approach the table every Sunday as well. We're going to pick up in verse 15, chapter 10. Paul says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So obviously this is a meal with God. The first meal that Adam and Eve had was a meal without God. This is obviously a meal with God. The word participation there uh, is, the, is the Greek word, I think you say koinonia. It's the word that we use for fellowship. This is what communion to participate with. It can be interpreted or translated communion and also fellowship. So he's asking rhetorical questions. His point is, when we partake in this meal together, we are fellowshipping with the broken body of Jesus, with the shed blood of Jesus. We are, we are fellowshipping with his death. It's like we are, we are with him in this moment. This is part of how we spend time with God and taking communion. As we partake together, we fellowship with our God at the table of communion. This is a big deal. 
I want to make sure that we approach the communion table in the right way. Obviously, it's something we do very consistently. I want to make sure we're doing it in a way that is honoring to God. So there are four ways I want to just bring out of this, of this passage and also a little bit in chapter 11. Four different ways that we should approach the communion table every Sunday. So here this has every Sunday when we, when we say the communion table is now open. Here is what you want to be doing to be approaching the communion, communion table and partaking in it in a way that honors God. The first way that we approach the communion table is reverently. We approach it reverently. Look at verse 16 again. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? We approach it reverently because, as I said earlier, we are fellowshipping with God in this. We approach this table together as a family, honoring him, Jump down to verse 18, see how Paul continues to make his argument about communion. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? The food offered to idols is anything. That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Pause right there for a second. He said, I'm not saying that these idols and these false gods that they were worshiping were, are anything at all, but he's saying there, there is demonic lies that lie behind all of these false gods that, that they were worshiping. He said, I don't want you to be participating with demons and what they were doing. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he God's jealousy is actually a huge theme throughout the Bible. That the, the, the children of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, they made a covenant with him. They said, we will, God, we will be your people. We will follow you. And God said, they said, we will worship you above all other gods. And God said, I will make you my people and I will treasure you more than any other possession that I have. There was this exclusive type of relationship. And God is jealous anytime his people choose to put something else over him, choose to worship something else instead of him. Uh, the, the covenant that is made there, it resembles a marriage. Saying, I'm going to put you above all others. And they said to God, we're going to put you above all other false gods or anything else in our lives. And we're going to have this exclusive relationship with one another. And just as a husband is jealous if his wife were to flirt with someone else or go off to be with someone else, God is jealous when his people choose some other false god over him. Paul asked, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he this passage shows us just how deep and spiritual the act of communion is. We're not just walking to the table every week and just picking up some bread and just, and just dipping it in some juice and drinking it just because it's some tradition that people did a long time ago. Paul is saying, no, no, this is, we, we fellowship with God in this. This is, this is a very spiritual thing that is happening when we partake in communion together. And he says, it's a spiritual thing that's happening. If anyone participates in any form of, of, of structured idol worship, to any specific other guys. And there's a spiritual thing that is going on. He says, if you're going to approach the communion table, you need to approach it as a Christian. The communion table is not for seekers, so to speak. For those who are still trying to figure out about Christianity or for those who like this part of Christianity, but also like this part of these other religions. Maybe I like this part of Buddhism or I like this part of Islam, but I also like a little bit of what Jesus is teaching. Paul said, that's not who communion is for. That's not who communion is for. You don't, you don't dabble in other religions and also approach 
the Lord's Supper, the communion tables for those that say Jesus is Lord. The God of the Bible is the only God that I worship. I live to worship him. I forsake my allegiance to any other God that I may have been following, any other faith that I may have been a part of. We approach the communion table with the utmost reverence for Jesus. If you're still deciding, if you're still saying, hey, I, I don't know about Jesus, I'm still trying to learn more about him if I want to be a Christian, we love you and we are very glad that you're here and we hope that you continue to come back. I want to let you know this is the communion table is, is one of the very few things that we do that we would ask you not to participate in. We would ask you not to partake in. This is a very sacred thing that he set up for his people. It's a, it's a sacred spiritual worship practice for those who worship him. And God takes it very, very seriously. Continue Jump down to verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, talking about without being a Christian or follow Jesus, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Paul saying to partake in communion as someone who does not actually follow and truly worship God is to sin against the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. It's to make a mockery of his death. It's to take it lightly and say, yes, I want, I want to commune with him in this, but not truly follow him and worship him. So Paul instructs that, that we examine ourselves before we take communion. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. In this reverent time, Paul says introspection is very important. Are we actually following Jesus? Are we turning away from the sin that he died to take away from us? Or are we currently living in rebellion against him? Are we currently rebelling against him in any way that we are aware of? He says we should examine ourselves before we partake in communion. We should approach it reverently. Verse 30 says, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Paul says that some have suffered illness, and some have even died because of the judgment that they have brought on themselves by not approaching the communion table appropriately. We approach the table reverently, judging ourselves, as Paul says. Now, it's my, my belief that the, those who have suffered under that judgment from God, weren't actually Christians, haven't actually been born again, and were approaching the table. But the point remains that this is a big deal to God. This is not something he takes lightly. Verse 31, but if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged, he says. So he's saying if you're actually examining yourself and you're actually approaching the communion table, you don't have anything to fear as far as God's judgment on us. If we're actually coming as worshipers of God who reverently seek him, we approach the table reverently. That's kind of the posture number one that we should have. The point number two, point number two of how we should approach the communion table, we approach it united. We approach it united as one. If you jump back to verse 17, we're going to be bouncing around a bit in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 10, verse 17 reads, because there is one bread, we who, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 
Paul says that when we come together, we partake of the bread together. We do it as one body, just as it's one piece of bread. We, we partake as one body. We approach the table united. Paul continues this point in chapter 11, verse 17. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Paul, he says, I got some issues with the way that you're taking communion. He says, there are divisions among you when you are approaching the communion table. That there are factions that are there. There is division. Now, at that time on Sundays, the way the church used to gather was probably a bit more like our life group meetings than, than our corporate worship services, like the one that you're at now. A lot of times when we get together on Sundays, uh, it was more like an all-day affair sometimes, definitely more than probably an hour or two. A lot of times it was centered around a big meal, and as a part of that meal, they would partake in communion together. So it was a, a time of great fellowship uh, when they would celebrate God's grace towards them. It is believed by many who have studied that time period that what was happening was the rich people were getting there early. They, didn't, they likely didn't have to work. They were bringing food and they were getting there early and they were eating until they were full. Some were even getting drunk. But the, the people who were working, who had to work that day would get there a bit later and oftentimes the food would have run out. So there was preferential treatment that was given to some because of their socioeconomic class. And in general, they weren't considering everyone as much as they were considering themselves. This meal that was meant to unite was being done in such a way that it actually caused more division within a church. And Paul had very strong words for them. Chapter 11, verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? I've never seen Paul do that before. He's, what are you doing? He said, this is not, I don't know what you're doing. This is not the Lord's communion that you are partaking, or this is not the Lord's Supper, I should say. Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? So when he starts coming with the rhetorical questions that they already know the answer to, don't you have a house to drink in? You're coming in and eating until you're full and you're getting drunk, and some people aren't even able to eat. eat. If you're trying to eat because you're hungry, eat at home. Don't you have a house that you can eat in? They're approaching the Lord's Supper inappropriately, and Paul says, because they're approaching it inappropriately, that it's actually not the Lord's Supper. They got the bread, they got the juice or the wine or whatever it is, but he's saying this is not the Lord's Supper that you are participating in. So as we just saw, he began in verse 22 with a rhetorical question, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? He follows it up with another one. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Paul is saying this type of division, this type of exclusion in the church through this rhetorical question is revealing that they are actually despising the church and what it was meant to be. That they will be content to allow the division to remain, to allow the exclusion to remain. Remember, the church is to be a group of people where everyone's on a level playing field. Nobody's more worthy of God's grace than anybody else. No one's more worthy of being saved by God than anyone else. No matter your socioeconomic status, no matter what ethnicity you are, no matter where you come from, your background, no matter, no matter, everyone's on the same playing field. All of us sinners in need of God's grace. 
all of us, the forgiven people of God, who then forgive those who sin against us. And Paul is saying for you to let this division come in between you shows that you actually despise the church as God has made it. You despise the fact that he made it in such a way that now you're to be reconciled with any other believer in the church who sins against you. He's saying you despise the church. If you're going to let this, this, this group that is to be the most united group on the planet, the church of God, and you're going to let division and exclusion continue on in this area, in this church, in this, in this, this church that is one with God and one with each other, he's saying you despise the church. You despise the fact that you've been made one with your brother and sister, maybe who you don't like. You despise the fact, maybe even that that's your brother and sister. I had a conversation with one Christian before and was like, you voted to him or you're no brother or sister of mine. You despise the church. You despise what Jesus has actually done in dying to reconcile a people back to himself. This lack of unity is revealing of their hearts. Revealing that the problem isn't just that they don't understand communion properly, but they actually despise the church, Paul says. And if we're going to be real, we got to admit that some of us approach the communion table in here every Sunday and, and aren't right with our brother or sister in this church. If we're going to be real, we got to be honest about the fact that there's bitterness that there's unforgiveness that is going undealt with within our church, and we approach the communion table together every Sunday. Paul says, do you despise the church of God? I believe he would ask us the same question. Harboring bitterness. Oh, I just not, I'm just not going to deal with them. I'm just not going to deal with them. Oh, I'm, I mean, I'm, it's, it's whatever. I mean, I ain't going to worry about it. I ain't really that mad about it. I just, you know, I, I, I can't mess with them like that. Do you hate what this church, what the church is all about, what the church actually is, what he actually created when he died for us? We are a forgiven people. We forgive our brother and sister. We may not be eating a full meal when we come together, but if there is division when we approach the table, it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be dealt with before we approach the communion table. In one of the Gospels, there's a story where, where uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Jesus tells them that go be made right with your brother before you even come and bring your gift to the altar. Go be made right with your sister before you come to worship in this way. Is what is appropriate. Is, is, what, is who we are. We walk in oneness with each other. If you've been with us for a while, you know, nine out of ten Sundays, we'll probably be doing communion. Some of you maybe need to go to a brother and sister before the service starts and just make, make it right. You know we're going to the table. You know we're going to the table. Some of you need to get here, get here early, find them, say, hey, can we step aside for a second? I need, I need to have a conversation so that we can be reconciled and walk in unity together so that we can approach communion the way that it was intended to be approached. Some of you, you might realize it. You might have just realized something right now. You got going on with a brother or sister in the church. Maybe before communion starts, you need to go, to them, hey, can we step aside? Don't worry about what other people are going to think. This is about before you go worship God, you're going to be made right with your brother or your sister in the faith. Go talk about it, settle it, and hopefully approach the communion table together. Unite it even more than you were before. 
deal with whatever it is between you and another brother or sister. We approach it, we approach the table united, we approach it reverently, we approach the table remembering. Remembering. We're going to go back to chapter 10, verse 23 and 24. We approach the Lord's Supper remembering. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. When he instituted communion, as he passed them the elements, obviously he told them to remember him when they do this. Remember that he died to pay for the sins of the world. Remember that his body was broken. So when we approach the communion table, it's a time of great reflection, not just on ourselves. That wouldn't truly be the essence of worship. If we go to the communion table only focusing on ourselves and how we're living, but we also focus on him. We fill our minds with the painful yet glorious thoughts of the cross, that his body was broken, that his blood was poured out for us. And I hope we don't miss the imagery of the broken bread. He grabs the bread and he breaks and says, this is my body broken for you. We don't just break the bread because that's the only way that we can get everybody a piece. We break the bread because it's a picture of what happened to his body on the cross and when they were torturing him. We break the bread with, with, with hands so that you can see this is, this is ripped apart. We break the bread as a reminder of what he endured for us. And we dip it in the juice as a reminder that his body, his flesh was soaked in his own blood. That it was his bloody flesh that was ripped off of him when he died, that we might know him, that we might be saved. We remember the cross when we approach the table. Remember that just as God's people in the Old Testament were freed from the oppression of Pharaoh, we are freed from the oppression of sin. As Jesus says that all who sin or all who practice sin are enslaved to sin. But if the Son sets you free, then you are free indeed. We approach it remembering that we have sinned far more than we care to admit, but that we are more free than we truly understand. That we are the people of God who have been set free. We remember that we were helpless, we were hopeless, we were were guilty of sin, we we were controlled by our sin. We remember now that we are forgiven of that sin and set free and redeemed from sin. We remember his love, his sacrifice, his commitment to us. That he didn't abandon us, that he could have called the angels, a legion of angels to, to free him, but we remember that he did not. That he didn't abandon us in his worst moment. That we might, we might remember that he is with us in our worst moments. That in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's facing the cross, that he could have chosen not to go to the cross, but he stayed the course that we might be set free. We remember him. We remember him, his goodness to us. But we don't just look back. The fourth posture that we have is that we approach the communion table anticipating. We approach the communion table anticipating. We, we look forward when we approach the communion table. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he what? Until he comes. We talked about the first four meals, I said there were five, if you remember at the very beginning. The fifth meal that, that we see that impacts all of history 
is the wedding supper that's in Revelation. That this is the meal that we're partaking around a table together in local churches. We, we partake in this meal together, but one day we're going to go to be with him to partake in that meal, in the meal that will book in all of history together. You see, just like Jesus initiated the fourth meal communion, he's also going to initiate the fifth meal, which is the meal of the wedding supper when we go on to be with him in the new heaven and the new earth. This, this communion is going to give way to a greater meal. Yes, now this meal, we do fellowship with God, but it doesn't compare to how we will see him and know him and be with him at the fifth meal. On Sundays all over the world, many people of God, we come together, we partake in communion, we're united together with him. But one day, all the people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather together around the Lord's table. And we will eat. And I said earlier how being, being at the table with your loved ones and having a meal is one of the greatest joys that you will ever know. And one day, all of God's people, all of God's people past, all of God's people present, all of God's people future will be together at the table and we will worship in the presence of our God. The book of Genesis, we see in, in the beginning that there's this meal without God where they separate from God to have this meal. But at the end, God's people are back with him around his table, eating his meal in fellowship with him with all sin having been removed from us forever. When we approach the communion table, we anticipate a greater meal. And every time we come together, every week that we come together to partake in the Lord's Supper together, we're one meal closer to that meal. We're one meal closer to the time where we're going to go and be with him and be rid of all the brokenness of this world. We're one meal closer to the time where we'll be with him, rid of all the effects of the first meal, rid of all the pain that happened at the first meal. We will go and be with him. We go and we approach the communion table remembering that meal. Luke chapter 22. I'm getting ahead of myself. Luke chapter, chapter 22, verse 15. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's saying this meal, after I eat this with you right now, I'm not eating it again until I get to eat it again with you in glory is what he's saying. Verse 17, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He's saying, I'm withholding myself the joy of having this meal until I get to have it with you again in the kingdom, Jesus says. At the very onset of communion, as Jesus is instituting, he's saying, he's casting our vision forward. He's saying, look back, but also look forward and know that there's going to be a day where I will eat with you again. On that day, he will return, take all of our pain away, wipe away all tears, remove us from all sin. If you want a follower of Jesus... If you're in the room and you don't know him, you haven't repented from your sin and turned to him, the call for you today is to repent from a life of sin and embrace the freedom that he offers you. Today, right now, in the room, turn away from that sin and then approach the communion table with us in just a few moments together and actually participate in the Lord's Supper for the first time. And if you're a follower of Jesus, let's approach the table united. If there's any issues that we need to work out, work them out before you go to the table. Let's approach it reverently, honoring him, honoring who he is. Remember that we, that we are fellowshipping with him, with his body, with his blood that was shed. Let's approach it remembering what Christ has done. Let's approach it with our appetites wet for the day that we'll go and eat with him in the kingdom when we'll be with him forever. 
Let me pray for us before we open the communion table today. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you stayed the course, that you, you could have come down off the cross. You didn't have to die for us, but you shared your blood. You allowed your body to be broken for us, God. Will we approach communion as reverently as you call us to? Would you keep this from ever being just this, this ritual that we do on a consistent basis? Because this is just the thing that we do. But will we see this as a time of worship, a time of, of fellowship with you, a time of communing with you and with each other? Father, I ask for boldness for us. For anyone in the room that has something against a brother or sister that needs to be worked through, would you give us boldness to, to talk to that person, to make things right? Father, would you give us, give us boldness if we ever feel like we can't approach the communion table because of how much we have sinned? Would you help us to, to see your broken body and your blood that was shed that washes us clean? and allows us to worship you, a holy God. Thank you for being with us as we partake in your broken body and your shared blood today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.